All right, Jason, we got a, a lot to cover. I, I guess I want to first start with your journey to the Mavericks. Uh, what was it like going over from Atlanta to Dallas and, and not only just changing teams, but having to replace a guy uh, in, in Steve Nash who was so beloved by the fans? Well, leaving Atlanta for me was, was a blessing uh, getting out of there. They were going into a rebuild mode and, um, you know, ownership was professional. You know, they took me in the office and they asked me, we just had our third coach in four years and it was, do you want to rebuild and be a part of this or do you want to, uh, go to a contender? Uh, there's several suitors out there for you and, um, what, what do you think? And I said, man, at this point in my career, I want to go play for a championship. And so that summer, um, Dallas traded for me. And uh, immediately coming in, there was competition at the point guard position. We had drafted uh, Devin Harris, who was a rookie with high expectations. Uh, they were really, you know, kind of grooming him to take over for Nash. Uh, but obviously I had the experience. Uh, and, and right away uh, he was penciled in as the starter. I had to back him up. And then about halfway through, uh, they made me the starter. So it was a little bit of a roller coaster early on. Uh, but as we, you know, started to gain confidence and I started to gain chemistry with Dirk, uh, we bonded and formed a two-man game that was uh, pretty darn good at the time. Now, you know, you, you talk about starting and coming off the bench and, and eventually you uh, played an incredibly important role coming off the bench but very easily could have started and, and certainly had starters minutes and production and and if I remember, you you basically volunteered to do this or accepted that role in, in the prime of your career and, and what it was an incredibly kind of selfless team move. What was that like, that, that decision, and, and how did you determine that whereas, you know, everyone wants to be a starter, that this might be best for the team? And uh, I guess what was that process like for you? Well, well for me, it was, it was seamless because in college, I had done so in my sophomore year, and we ended up winning a national championship. So I just thought, I mean, hey, this is no different. If our goal is all in for one common goal, and that's to win an NBA championship, then, you know, there's going to be a, a, some form of sacrifice along the way. And, you know, I had no problem doing it in college, and then to me this was no different. And it also gave me my own identity and my own role uh, to star in. And so I, I took that to heart, and it, it was something, again, that was made very, very easy for me. And then it, it also makes it easy when the coaching staff is on the same page and you know when you're going in the game. And you also know that when you're in the game, you will be featured and they will be going to you, counting on you uh, to provide that scoring punch. You, you, some guys, when they play, they, they sort of blend in. Uh, you certainly did not, whether it was the, the headband, the high socks, you know, extending the arms and, and kind of – uh, personifying the the Jet nickname, uh, how important was it for you to be able to express yourself like that, uh, to just be comfortable and, and to kind of be you? And, and how did that on court persona develop? I guess over the years. Well, for me, the, the on court persona when I was drafted, I always wore the high socks and the headband. You know, the socks were a tribute to my father. Uh, I seen a yearbook picture of him wearing those. The headband was a tribute to my first PE coach uh, in Slick Watts. Uh, and then I also wore an armband on my left arm, and that was a tribute to my idol, Michael Jordan. Um, but when I came to the Mavericks, uh, I was looking for a new identity, and my initials are J.E.T., Jason Eugene Terry. And so I thought, how cool would it be to kind of fly off 
you know, guys around the league at that particular time, after they would do a, a move or dunk on somebody or hit a three, they would have their own celebration. So I said, okay, well, if I hit a three, my celebration would be the jet, and I'll emulate a jet and fly off of it. Now, was it a huge hit right away? No, because I had an old school coach in Don Nelson who played for the Celtics where, I mean, if you scored, it was just what you were supposed to do. I mean, you went about your business. So one day in practice, Coach Nelson is coming around. We're stretching. I'm on the floor. And I had just come off a big game against Utah where every bucket I hit, I flew off, uh, not knowing that I was kind of pissing him off. Um, so he came by me, and he started flapping his arms. Now, this did not emulate a jet at whatsoever. Uh, Don Nelson was a big guy in stature, and he was kind of flopping around like a bird. And he was like, what the heck was that? what you were doing last night whatever it was i don't want to see that crap ever again and so you know me i kind of laughed at it and suckled but i was like uh, yeah he don't think i'm gonna do it again but I, I i think i am but uh towards the end of the season he ended up leaving and and, and avery johnson took over and avery didn't mind it at all uh, so did did people call you jet before coming to the mavericks no i was just jt Okay. Uh, everybody knew me as either socks or JT, and so you know, every, obviously the fans start seeing me flying around emulating a jet, and so they just kind of took heed to it, and then everybody else joined in and started start calling me the jet. That's funny because when I think of like calling someone socks, I think of Elliot Perry. I, I'm I'm sure yep. you cross paths with him at some point. Yep, yep. And they, those guys for years, I would get ribbed, and they thought. We were related, but I was like, no, it's Perry, dummy, not Perry. It would have But we do we do look like each other a little bit. Uh, Jet, you, you kind of made a name for yourself, especially on the, those really good Mavs teams of, of coming up big in the fourth quarter. You know, I, I think about, oh, there's so many moments. Uh, you know, I know for sure that, that championship-winning season, the, the big three you hit, which – if I'm not mistaken, was was in a similar spot against the Heat as you know years back uh, in in 06 when it didn't work out that well. But I mean, you were so clutch and 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 so I mean, the, the, subjectively, but also looking at the numbers in the fourth quarter when it counted. Why why were you either able to elevate or maintain your level of play in, in those tense moments when some guys have such a, a tough time finding that success? What was key for you? Well, early on in my basketball career in high school, I was a sophomore starting on a senior-laden team in the state tournament. Um, this team was nationally ranked, and we had high expectations of winning a state title. Uh, but in our state tournament game, we were about to be upset, and I had an opportunity to take the last shot. And the play wasn't drawn up for me. It was drawn up for one of the seniors. I take the shot. I miss. And when we get back to the locker room, I mean, the, the seniors are going hard on me. They're telling me I ended their career, and, you know, that wasn't my shot to take. And so after that's all said and done, the assistant coach, rest in peace, he just passed away recently, uh, Lou Hobson comes up to me and he said, you know what, kid? He said, that took big, big balls of you to take a shot like that. And he said, you didn't make it today, but I guarantee you for the rest of your career, you're going to make many, you're going to take and you're going to make many more of those shots. I just thought that was huge of you. Uh, don't have to put your head down. Let's get back to work. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I mean, in that moment, I told myself I will never, ever fear failure. And I always will, you know, if I had the opportunity, take, 
the last shot or the defining shot to win a game. And and am I right in that that the 2011 shot? I think it was like LeBron was closing out from you. Was it the same spot? I mean, did that yeah. did that mean anything? I don't know. Maybe I'm making that yeah. up. But is that true? No, no, very very true. And uh, I I told the story yesterday, and it was the first time I've told it. It was that in '06. Um, I had a chance to tie the game in game six and send it to overtime. And, you know, I missed. I mean, it was I had a great look at it. And, and the play was drawn up for me at that particular time. And so I always, at the end of my workouts, when I was in the AAC and I worked out in that gym on that basket in that same spot, literally for about four, four years, I would, in my workout, I would have to make 20 shots from that exact spot. And so the night before game six, I was in that spot. I was doing my move, and I was, I was shooting. I made 20 of them in that same spot. And so for me, it was about preparation and being ready for that moment, not knowing when that moment would come, and it just so happened to come in, in the biggest moment uh, in my career to that point. And when you think about that season and that team, I, I feel like with any successful team, they always talk about those those moments along the way that kind of brought them together or allowed them to take that next step. What were those moments for that 2011 group? I, I think one of the biggest moments was, um, there were several, but there were two that I can recall and it had to do with injuries. And one was when Karan Butler went down on New Year's. It obviously changed the dynamics. Of, of our team, we had to put Sean Marion in the starting lineup, and he became our our our, our small forward uh, at that position. And then it was another time when Dirk went down with a knee injury. I mean, he was literally out for about two, maybe even three weeks. And man, it, maybe maybe it was a little less than, than two weeks. And we did not win a game, and so we were struggling. We had to dig deep and, and try to figure it out, but we had to hold fort until Dirk came back. And so that was the defining moment where we had to get through some adversity. Uh, then you fast forward to the playoffs, and, you know, getting through Portland was tough. We're up 2-0. They come back and win two games at home when we had a 20-point lead. Um, that was tough. But, you know, there was a time in the locker room where, you know, we easily could have folded and, and guys could have second-guessed his coach's plan. But, you know, we had a great leader in Jason Kidd who said, man, this, this is nothing. We'll go home. We'll win game five. We'll come back down here and we'll get these guys out of here in game six. And to hear that from your leader uh, who, you know, had witnessed and experienced a lot of playoff difficulties, as did we, I mean, that just that just steadied the ship for us. Um, and then to go to game one, or I'm sorry, game two, down 1-0 in Miami, down double digits with about three minutes or four minutes left in that game, and to come back in the fashion we did and, and, and beat them in game two, uh, that was truly a defining moment in our run because we never folded. Uh, when games were tight, I mean, our motto, our motto was if there was time left on the clock, there was time for us uh, to get the victory. And so we never folded and we never sh- were shook when times were tough. And I, I think that was the sign of a, a veteran team. That was a t- sign of a team that knew that our time was now. And it was a veteran team, if I'm not mistaken, that none of you guys had won a title before, right? So you guys were all kind of doing it together. Yeah, yeah, we were all doing it together. It, it was all the stars were aligned, uh, you know, and, and it's for, to win a championship from 1 through 13 up all the way through the coaching staff, all the way to management, um, to ownership, to your fan base, have to understand what the goal is and have to be all in. And I thought, to a man, 
we were all in in that particular instance. And a lot of it had to do with a lot of us getting there and, 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 and not winning. You know, the, the disappointment of losing and being so close. And I can honestly tell you, we were all aligned and we were all on the same page. And we would do whatever it took to make sure we won the championship that season. You were a gym rat, and you already talked a little bit about uh, some of your practice habits. But, you know, how, how did you develop your routine? And especially as a shooter, I always hear, I think you and I actually talked about this on a, a Legends broadcast earlier this year, the developing a routine as a shooter. How long did it take you to to develop a routine that fit best for you? And and did you look to to any of your peers or teammates to try and figure out how to go about developing like the best practice routine for you? Well, the foundation of my routine, I will give credit to two people, and that is Mike Bibby and um, Josh Passner, who is now the coach at Georgia Tech in college. Um, I watched uh, Mike Bibby when he came to Arizona as a freshman. And I just studied. I, I studied every every shot that he took, every workout that he did, and then I implemented that going into my senior year, and I ended up becoming a national player of the year. And so once I realized I had success with that workout, I continued that same routine as I got into uh, the NBA. Now that routine evolved when I became the Dallas because I, I'm a student, I study, I watch Dirk. And what I watched in Dirk's routine was, yeah, he got the repetition of the shots in, but not only did he make a lot of shots in his workout, he ended up going to every spot on the floor where he knew the offense would be ran through him, and he would over and over and over again make shots and take moves uh, that he would do in the game. And so that routine for me, I implemented in mine. And then the last routine was um, Jason Kidd and the way he lifted weights uh, day of the game. Like I was a big workout guy in the off season. Through the season, I would do whatever the team lift was. But when Jason Kidd came to the Mavericks, he was working out on his legs like hard before the games. And I, I just I went up to him one day and said, "Man, what, what you doing that for? Didn't that tire you out? Don't you get tight or fatigued in your legs when you play if you lift the day up?" And he's no, not like actually it strengthens my legs. I'm like, oh okay. So I started to implement that into my routine. So, you know, those are some of the little things that I picked up from my teammates along the way. You mentioned Arizona. I want to spend some time talking about your, your Arizona days. First of all, you, you, you identified Josh Passner there, and he was a, a teammate of yours at Arizona, right? So this was not yes. – I know he coached there, but your relationship with him was as teammates. Yeah, and, and, and he was a teammate. And, again, I, I'll tell you right now, when he was recruited to come to Arizona, everybody – thought Lute Olsen was crazy. They're like, I mean, this kid is barely six feet. He's too slow. Yeah, he can shoot, but he's never get his shot off. He's never going to get in. And and what people didn't understand was Josh was really a player coach. Uh, when there was nights when the gym was closed, he would meet you out at a park in the desert, and you would get your shots up there. You would work out there. He'd be the one rebounding for you. Um, he was our biggest cheerleader on the team. Uh, when times got tough, you couldn't talk to coach. You can talk to Josh. He was also our spiritual leader. He has a strong faith uh, background. So this guy was a player coach the whole time, and he was setting himself up uh, for uh, life after he graduated from college. He was going to be a coach. All right, now, Jason, you were you were a part of a dying breed. There, there are not many guys who have the career that you ended up having who uh, stuck it out in college as long as you did, and it's just a different era. You were a four-year guy at Arizona, 
Uh, and you mentioned Mike Bibby. You, you, you had some guys like Mike Bibby, Miles Simon, Michael Dickerson, some great teammates. And then your senior year was your year. That was, you know, that was when you won National Player of the Year. That was those guys were gone. They had cleared the path for you. Did you go into that year like with the thought, like this is my time? I've got to take advantage of it. Did you not really think of it that way? What was it like, kind of, as you were waiting for those guys to? to give you the freedom, I guess, to, to go on and graduate so you could do what what you were ultimately able to do? Well, I have to give Lute Olsen um, tons of credit. And it was something that I observed in my freshman year. Uh, I was competing with uh, Reggie Geary, who was a senior at the time, and I literally was the better player. Like, I actually should have been the starting point guard my freshman year. But physically, Reggie was more ready, and then I didn't understand the dynamic of loyalty. You know, when a coach promises you when you step on that campus that one day you will be the, 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 the leader of this team, then that's something that you guys take to heart. And I watched the, the, the relationship Reggie and Coach had, and I understood it. And so after seeing that, I knew after my sophomore year we won the national championship, all the scouts were coming around. Junior year, we knew Mike Bibby would be drafted first round, Miles Simon and Michael Dickerson. But there was also a word that, I could possibly enter my name in the draft and be drafted in the first round. And so for me, I just felt like, man, what what Luke did for Reggie Geary was phenomenal. I want that same experience. Yeah, I mean, my time will come one day. I'll go to the NBA and get drafted. That's a dream. Uh, But I really want to lead a university and win a national championship and say I was a big reason for that. And so I went in Luke's office the spring of my junior year and, he was like, look, it's your time now. We go as far as you take us. And I trusted him, and I believed in it. And I literally probably only set out a total of six minutes that entire senior year. And so I had every opportunity to kind of carve out my own path and, and, and successfully go to the league or not. And it was all on my shoulders. Jay, you were an NBA champion, an NCAA champion. I, I, I believe you won at high school. You were state champion in Washington when you were uh, going to high school in Seattle. I know as a coach with the Lady Jets, uh, you guys have had a lot of success. And then I think as a varsity coach this past year, you won a, a state title. Everywhere you go, you win. What are, I guess, first of all, how much pride do you take in that? And, and what are some of the things you've learned that are, that that just are shared by all winning teams or winning players? Well, well for me, it's your core belief system, your core values. And uh, once you set a standard for yourself, it's something that you will never jeopardize, you will never compromise. And for me, it's, it's trust in God, it's faith, it's, it's hard work, it's dedication, and then the willingness to sacrifice. And once you set down your foundation and your core beliefs, um, then you have to go out and set goals. And every single team that I've been a part of, uh, we've never set a goal less than winning at all. And so I think, you know, sometimes you have to speak it into existence, and I try to do that to the best of my abilities. And um, you, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. It's always going to be a team effort. But if you can get everybody that's involved to buy in collectively as one unit for one goal, then you can realize the ultimate goal. And I think I've been able to do that in all my championship experiences. And I, I'm, I'm just blessed, man. I've also been blessed and fortunate to be amongst some of the greatest coaches that have, have been around, the greatest motivators, the greatest mentors, and then some of the greatest teammates. you got to think, on my national championship teams, I mean, I had All-Americans. On, on my 
NBA championship team. I had Hall of Famers. I won a USA Gold uh, medal, and I had some Hall of Famers on that team. Uh, and then, you know, to speak about my coaching experience this year um, with the North Dallas Adventist Academy, I had a young lady that has a chance to be very special. She'll be a Division One player. She was State Player of the Year. So I can't say it's me all by myself, uh, but I can say that, you know, implementing those core values has set the foundation for a championship mindset. Jed, I know for a long time you've you've wanted to get into coaching. I want to just quickly talk about that side of it. But I, I think maybe people like yourself who have an interest in coaching, they they have an ability to maybe be more aware of things, but not not every player is like that. So when you talk about sacrificing and, and the core belief system as a coach, how do you communicate that to players effectively? Because I know you can say things and players – you know, it can go in one ear and out the other, but for you to effectively communicate that, your beliefs to someone else, what have you learned works best from a leadership standpoint in that regard? Well, one thing you have to do is, is, is be accountable, right? Every day you step in, you have to be accountable for your actions, and you have to live it. And, and when I say live it, I mean you have, to, you have to talk about it. It has to be something that has to be preached every single day, and I think I got that from um, Avery Johnson. I mean, Avery Johnson every day would tell us, I mean, you guys are going to be champions. You will have the opportunity to play for a championship. And, you know, some guys laugh and chuckle, but there were some of us that really took that to heart, and we were willing to do anything to obtain that, that goal. Now, you know, not, not knowing that he wouldn't be the coach when we were champions, but he himself was laying the foundation for myself and Dirk at that particular time. So um, as a coach, as a leader, I think that message has to be consistent. And it has to be constant, and you got to be willing to run through a wall to pursue it. And and so I think the best leaders are those also are those ones that are willing to be led. And so uh, along my journey along the way, I have always been receptive to stern and, and, and great leadership. I, I'm sure you've you've taken bits and pieces from so many coaches along the way, and I, I know you just mentioned Avery, and, and obviously you want a title playing for Rick and. You got the chance to be a part of some some organiz- different organizations in the NBA, different coaches. But years from now or, or next year or whenever you inevitably win a, a Coach of the Year award, be it at college or the NBA level, and you're you're up there giving your speech, and and you've got to thank or identify the the three or four coaches who really influenced the man you became as a coach. Who are those guys? Well, my my, my two high school coaches, Ron Drayton and and, and Lou Hobson. You know, the hard work, the dedication, the constant grind, you know, they instilled that in me uh, from day one. Uh, obviously, Lou Olson in college, he taught me about accountability and how to be responsible for your actions. And then you talk about the NBA, becoming a student of the game. Avery Johnson made me study the game and become a, a, a student of my craft. Um, and then uh, Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle has taught me, you know, that – you don't have to uh, know everything, but you have to empower somebody around you that does. And I think he is a prime example of getting the best out of less, but he empowered every single guy on that championship roster that they had a role, they had a responsibility, and that we were going to count on them in one instance or another. And I think that was huge uh, to our success. So those are those are the coaches, man. I can also thank a guy like Doc Rivers and then Jason Kidd. I mean, because he was one of my teammates, um, but he also coached me. 
and he allowed me to be in every film session, every coaches meeting that I was involved in, in in Milwaukee, the last two years of my career have prepared me to become a coach at uh, any level that I decide to uh, in the next coming years. All right. So similar question with a little bit of a different twist. You get your, your head coaching job. Who's the first guy you're calling to be on your staff? Oh man, that, that that's funny. I would say Dirk, uh, but I know <laughs> Dirk has no interest in coaching. But uh, you know, if he, if he's available, and I don't know, I mean, he's already been a head coach. Jay Kidd would be right up there, number one, uh, and then number two. I got a good friend that's been helping me through my process as I I venture into college coaching, and that's Jay John. He was a coach my senior year at the University of Arizona. He is now the associate AD um, at the University of Cal Berkeley. So is that your would your preference be college or would you like to do both college and NBA at some point? What, what like where are you on that? You know, right now I, I've really you know thrusted a lot of my energy and effort into um, college coaching. Um, I feel like there's a need there. There's a lot of guys, you know, and this year working with the G League it's just been a great experience for me. But there's a lot of guys that make a decision. Uh, based on where they're at financially or where their family has, has been financially, that they make a decision where they come out of school early. And now they're now forced to play in the G League or be on a team where they don't really have a role. I feel like I can have a huge impact on the decision process of some of those kids at the college level and give them sound advice, not advice from a coach that is trying to keep his job or not a guy that has interest in these players' career financially uh, because he's going to get something from it but from a guy that has had experience at all levels that can guide them and give them sound uh advice are we uh, am i talking to the first person to ever uh eventually coach a, a nca champion on the men's and women's side would, would you like to get into the the women's side of coaching as well i know you do a lot of that with your daughters but is that something that you would like to do, or would you, on, on the college level, would you like to only do the men? You, you know what? I've had a great 15-year run on the women's side. I'm still <laughs> actively involved, and I'll never rule that out, right? Uh, but I think at this point in my career, I'm, I'm going to you know, go full speed ahead on the, on the men's side and, and start to impact some of those lives on, on, on that lot, on that, in that regard. But I'll still be close to the women's game. Um, I, I still have my program here in Dallas, and there's a lot of kids that still need me. But, again, I, I definitely am looking forward to, to getting involved on the men's side. All right, last question, Jet. We'll let you go. What were you like growing up as a kid? What, what, what would the Jason Terry childhood look like from a personality standpoint and your hobbies and stuff like that? Man, I was a gym rat. I mean, and we didn't have gyms that we could necessarily go to in Seattle. It was raining all the time. We would be on, on the playground under what they call carports. Uh, it's a covered uh, goals on the basketball court. And, I mean, I was out there. Whether there was people playing or not, I would be out there playing. I would watch games or I would listen to the games on the radio. And then I would go and emulate whatever game that was just played. And I would be Isaiah Thomas. I would be Magic Johnson. I would be Michael Jordan. And I would relive those magic moments as the clock would wind down and they would take some, in, some of the biggest shots uh, in their careers. And I think that's kind of what fuels me uh, to this day. But I think that's what gave me my competitive edge were those days by myself in the rain on the playground in Seattle, Washington.